Joel chapter 2 is a bit more interesting, I guess, and there's a lot there. By, by way of overview of the whole book, I guess it's something that you see as you go through it, but it's easier to understand if you have the idea that Joel is a, um, has an immediate context um, as a recent local uh, locust plague had gone through and, and or is going through and could have even been prophesied for something that's coming shortly. Um, and it was something that they were familiar with and all, but um, in verse in chapter 1, it really goes into detail about that. And even in the middle of chapter 1, it begins to start to hint towards the prophetic and something other than locusts. And it starts to talk about a nation that the Lord's going to bring. So um, the overview of Joel is it has an immediate context uh, with the locust plague, and it also gives an imminent picture that lies ahead of this northern army invasion. And uh, we begin to talk about that a little bit more here tonight, but even last week uh, with um, the, the, um, the nation that was coming up against the land. And then uh, finally, it also declares the ultimate future day of the Lord and the culmination of human history. The prophecy of Joel is even to the last days and uh, the end of human history into the great tribulation and then on to the kingdom of God where Jesus reigns and restores his people Israel and um, reigns in Jerusalem. And so these are that's the basic overview. Um, by review of chapter 1, he starts out with a call to the elders and the inhabitants of the land and the fathers. And then saying, have you heard anything like this before? And um, for us to, you know, today it applies, you know, are we listening? Are we paying attention? Uh, we need to be listening and staying in God's word. And then he goes on to tell their children and grandchildren down through the generations. And we made a point about that, the influence that parents and grandparents and have on their kids and, and that carries on through generations. And how our Christian walk is just as important as what we say because more is caught um, from our lives and from our example than what is taught oftentimes. Our kids are watching what we do. Our grandkids are watching what we do and how we act. And um, so uh, already starting to indicate the book of Joel is a prophecy that's going through generations and needs to be passed on, even to us this day. Here we have this in our hands, the book of Joel from a millennia ago. And um, so it's, uh, again, God keeping his promise to keep his word for anyone who seeks him. And then he declares the complete devastation of the locust plague, different kinds of locusts that consume everything, even the bark and the vines and the trees. And because of this, he tells them that they need to wake up from their stupor. And, uh, you know, wake up, you drunkards. He goes into that in verse chapter 1. Um, and how necessary it is for us to be sober-minded, watching and waiting, because that day is near when these things will come to pass, and all the nearer now in the days that we're living in. And we talked about how the evidence of that for us is... May 14th, 1948, Israel coming into the land. And um, this is something that he promised and he prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And um, here we are living in the generation that gets to th see this take place. And we talked about how even the world and the people in the world see how things are winding down and, and things are kind of coming to a uh, some kind of a, a peak here with the uh, the way technology is going and the way the, the world is um, restless. Um, 
and even especially in our own country where things are moving towards even more serious concerns of how we're getting along together as a nation. So then he uh, says, how necessary it is us for to be sober-minded and watching and waiting. He moves on from a locust plague to a nation that is strong, without number, also leaving behind devastation. He calls them to lament, for even the house of the Lord had no food or supplies. He calls them, uh, even the priests uh, had no, nothing for the temple service. He tells the farmers to be ashamed, for there's no produce. It is withered up, and so even the joy of family and the sons are, you know, the joy of the sons is withering away. And even the joy that you have with your family and, and uh, the simplest of things is withering. Uh, even the priest lament in sackcloth for lack of food for the house of the Lord. And so in verse 14, he calls them to set aside a fast and a sacred assembly, a sacred, sacred gathering of the elders and all of the land to a fast to cry out to the Lord for the day of the Lord is at hand. And um, we'll talk about that a little bit more tonight. The day of the Lord is at hand, a day of destruction from the Almighty. There is no food and no joy, no gladness are gone from the house of God. And then Joel cries out to the Lord. And so why is the day of the Lord full of devastation and destruction? The reason being so that those who do not listen start to listen. And those that are drunk sober up. And those that never, never give God the time of day um, begin to cry out to him. And turn to him. And so as a bit of an overview of chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, starts off with that idea. Blow the trumpet and sound the alarm. Let's uh, go ahead and read through chapter 2. Get an idea of the overall of it and then come back and comment on it. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor, there ever, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations." A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds so they run. With a noise like chariots, over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. And they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city, and they run on the wall, and they climb in the houses, and they enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can endure it? 
Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. And who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room, let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. And the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. And I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army away and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul order will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up and the tree bears its fruit. A fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully. And he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. And so I will restore you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the, the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am the Lord in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also... On my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, for in the in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said, among the remnant who the Lord calls. Amen. So, going back, coming out of chapter 1, they're crying out to the Lord. And so he says, blow the trumpet. And uh, back then, uh, the trumpet was normally used for sounding an alarm, you know, what's going on. Or it was to gather everybody together for something. But this time it was the priests in the temple blowing the shofar. And as such, you know, it was chilling. What's going on that these guys are, they're, this is coming out of the temple. This is coming out of the house of the Lord. 
uh, and it set them to uh, this uh, terrible urgency that caused them to tremble, it says. And uh, it says, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. And then the reason being, for the day of the Lord is coming. And I wanted to do a little bit of background just so that we understand the day of the Lord speaks here of that great day of the Lord um, at the end of the the last days, the the seven year tribulation period, the millennium, and um, you know the Jacob's trouble it's referred to, and I think kind of the best way is to just read through a little more scripture if you don't mind. We go to Revelation chapter eight, and that's verse seven, just to talk a little bit about what he's going to be dealing with in Joel. Revelation chapter eight, verse seven, and then I think we'll read through nine, and you'll see some of these parallels. You'll see what he's talking about uh, is future yet and has to do with, with uh, that uh, tribulation period. And so in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 7, um, the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The, read I, the reason I read that one is because uh, the locusts, in chapter 9, are told to leave the green grass alone. And so what Joel saw may have been an overall of that, because it talks about it in Joel, it says, you know, they, fire went before them, and fire burned after them, and everything was consumed. And so just by comparison of chapter 9, and you can read it on your own too and study that, but uh, the best that we can come up with is that it's simply two different parts of what's actually going on during that day of the Lord. Um, because in 9, let's start reading there, the fifth angel sounded... And I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth, to whom was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit, and out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth had power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, any tree but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they, were not, and they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And I'm going to keep reading just to get to the end so you see a little bit of the point. In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns or something like gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, and with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. Now in Joel, they had no king. And if you study locusts, you realize that they just go forward as a, a group. It's all like they're tied together. They don't have a leader. But here now we see that, indeed, um, here's the one whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in the Greek he is named Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, two more woes come And after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year 
were released to kill a third of mankind. This is a terrible day of the Lord. And now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. And I heard of the, um, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horse, horses in the vision. Those who sat on them and had breastplates of fire, red, hyacinth, blue, sulfur, yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. Out of their mouths came fire and smoke and brimstone. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads. With them they do harm. Number 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Can you believe that? After going through all that and seeing that. Did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, Chevrolet, Ford, Mercury, right? And wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, buildings, towers, you know. Um, New York City, they love their buildings, right? And if you're from New York, I'm sorry, but you know that is a problem. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The idea, they did not repent. And now we wonder, as Joel is writing, you know, while he's viewing all these things, he's seeing the overall, and in three chapters he's describing really mostly in two chapters, all that takes place in the day of the Lord. And there's much, much more, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, and all. And so, moving on to verse 2, a day of darkness, gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be such after them even for many successive generations. One of the key verses or key statements regarding the day of the Lord is, never has been, never going to ever be like that again. It's one time in human history, in the history of this this uh, universe, that it is mentioned now in, in Daniel 12, 1 through 3. It talks about that, but in, Dan, in uh, Matthew 24, Jesus talks about that in to the point where it says, uh, for there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. And he's telling them, you know, when they see this and you're up on your roof, don't go back into the house to get anything. You know, this is, that's flee and uh, head on out. If you're, if you drop your tools, drop whatever you're doing, because this is coming. And he emphasizes that in, in Matthew 24. So reading now verses 3 through 11, a little more of the detail on this. Um, Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, uh, and like swift steeds. And so they run with a noise like chariots. And now that was also mentioned in Revelation, the sound that... uh, you know, some speculate these are, you know, Apache helicopters coming over the mountains. But, you know, this is a whole different ballgame. This is the Lord's army, right? It's his army that's coming coming forth that's going to keep his word. And um, so their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like swift steeds, with a noise like chariots. Over mountaintops they leap, uh, like the noise of flaming fire that devours the stubble. 
like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks and they do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city and they run on the wall. They climb in the houses. They enter at the windows. It's starting to sound like a movie, isn't it? Some zombie thing or something. Um, the, The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark. Jesus talked about that. It's also in Revelation. And the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army. It's his army. For his camp is very great and strong is the one who executes his word. And again, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And then the question, who can endure it? Now it's a rhetorical question because what's the answer? Well, nobody can. Right? Who can endure this? This is the Lord's army. It's very strong. Um, when Jesus, uh, the Roman soldiers came up and, and to him in the garden and said, uh, "You know, uh, who are you? You know, I am. Or are you the Son of God? Or are you the one that we seek?" And he says, "I am." And they fell over backwards. Uh, one angel, you know, can take out an entire Syrian army. And so we're talking about the full army or the whole army of the Lord is great. Um, Notice the phrase, never before, never again. Notice his army. Who can endure it? Nobody can. And you know, sci-fi would want to condition you to be able to take out zombies, right? You know, they got all the movies. You just got to do, I've never watched a zombie movie more than two minutes worth. And uh, so I don't know about that. And the, the whole netherworld you know, mummies and soldiers from the netherworld and, and all that that are supposed to be so running on the walls and climbing up and down and floating through the air and whatever they have to do, it's, it seems like it's right out of here. Well, the bottom line is nobody can endure this. You're not going to get together with, uh, you know, Bruce Willis and everybody and take them on or whatever, whatever actor. You know, so the it's funny how that, and it might be worth noting, how we're they're trying to condition us if you will, or not us, because we're not going to be here, but the world to think that they'll get through it. And so they don't even repent at the end. Well, how is it that they're not repenting uh, after all of this? Uh, and when we read in Revelation 9 to the end of that, it's just amazing to me that they do not repent. Well, the truth of it is we're talking about it before it's happening. And so at this point we see it coming. They saw it coming. Joel is prophesying, this day is coming, this day is near, this day is at hand. It's so much closer now, and so what does he say? Verse 12, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. The King James Version, um, I was going to go to, why don't we turn to Second Corinthians 7. Um, I'm, I have a new King James, but I, I wrote down this in the in the King James to um, make a point of of what it is, what true repentance is. Uh, what does it mean? You know, here there's a few things. It says, you know, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your heart, not your garments. Um, turning to Second Corinthians seven verse eleven, I'll read out of the King James. For behold, this self-same thing, 
that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, what zeal, yea, what revenge, and all what ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Um, what was going on with the Corinthian church was uh, Paul had written a letter to them and uh, because there were disputes going on between some of them were with, with Paul and some were with Apollos and some of the more spiritual ones were, I am of the Lord, you know. And, um, but it was causing division, and so he's talking to him about that and going on with, uh, and as he's writing, it, as it turns out, the indictment against them is they're not even taking care of sin in their own flock. Where they got a guy in the in the church that's sleeping with his mother-in-law or stepmom, you know, and and so it's a, a type of thing where they should be ashamed, and yet they're bragging about how they're all following this guy and that guy, and they got their act together because they're of of Paul or they're of Apollos and all. And so he he writes that. Well, they take it to heart, and in in Second Corinthians he commends them because they have taken it to heart. And for that same thing, they had been sorrowful. They repented. And here's how he lists these things that really describe true biblical repentance. A true repentance can be described with these characteristics. There's seven words, carefulness, clearing of yourself. I'll just read them and then read what the, kind of what the dictionary says about them or what the, the Hebrew means so you get the idea what's the meaning of, of true repentance. The first thing is carefulness. It's a speed or an eagerness, a haste and a diligence to interest oneself earnestly. And so they're careful to, um, it wrought in them that kind of carefulness. They're eager. They wanted to take care of this problem, his, his first letter. A clearing of yourself. An apology with a desire to be forgiven for what you did. Now there's a lot of apologies. Hey, sorry, you know, didn't mean to cut you off. Well, if you go down the road and cut off another guy, did you really mean that? You know, And so there's a lot of flippancy when it comes to people apologizing. But this is an apology, a clearing of yourself with a desire to be forgiven for what you did, for the sincere desire. You know what you did was wrong. You want to be forgiven. And indignation is the pain that's felt for the consequences of what was done. You know, If you're sin and you're seeking to repent from your sin, do you know do you feel that pain? Does, does it cause that, that uh, uh, knowledge of the consequences of what it was that you did and, and all? They had that with regards to this. And then fear. And the fear was of the consequences of what was done. They needed to be you know, punished, if you will. You know, or you know, with us, with how we relate to our lives, the things that we stumble into sometimes, you know, we know that we're deserving of death. And yet Jesus died for us on the cross. But if we're going to repent, we're going to repent with fear because we know that the consequences are there for what we did. Um, vehement desire, which is the conviction from the, from the Holy Spirit on our hearts. That vehement desire, that part that causes us to be convicted of that sin and of that, that lifestyle or whatever it was we were into. And that says zeal, the effort and the desire to stop the sin and lead a godly life. And then revenge is the word that really means accepting God's judgment. In other words, the revenge ought to have been on you. And so they acknowledge that. They understood that. With that, they see that they, they're accepting God's judgment. And without uh, and accepting the disgrace, um, the shame, the humiliation, 
taking the loss with no effort to justify yourself, defend yourself, excuse yourself, or excuse the sinful behavior. That's what Corinthians had over this issue, and that is one of the best studies in in what true repentance is, encompassing these things. I'm going to recommend you take a, you know, we all familiar with David Hawking. If you're not familiar with him, he's taught here many times at our conferences. He's got a book called Whatever Happened. It's really a pamphlet, nothing, what, 30 pages or something or less. It's called Whatever Happened to Repentance. In fact, I think I have have a few here if anybody is interested in one. Um, Just a thin little book. And it's, it carries this at, at, toward the end, uh, going through this in much more detail, but leading up to it, um, the repentance examples that are there for us throughout Scripture. And we're not going to be able to really truly come to that place where he's calling, where Joel is calling these people without true repentance. And 12, now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning. So even now, after all this, he still has his arms open and the invitation still stands to return to him. No matter what your sin or your rebellion or your backsliding or your disobedience or your crime, you can turn to him as long as you're still taking breath. I don't know what a reprobate person looks like. I can guess, you know, but truth is, I don't know what, what's in their hearts at that point and what the Lord can still do to a Jeffrey Dahmer or whoever you want to, think of you know um, we know that he can speak to our hearts and he can draw men to himself um, there are people with such hard hearts that the Bible considers calls them reprobate there's no hope and I don't know what that looks like I couldn't tell I don't know a single person I could look at that if the Lord's working in their life that he couldn't turn them and draw them to repentance and all and so in, in uh, verse uh, 13 he says rend your hearts Verses 13 and 14. Not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. And who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind and a grain offering. In other words, we can now begin to worship again. We now have, they can go to the temple, they can bring their offerings and begin to worship again. Who knows if he'll provide that for them if they turn. Rending the garments is a interesting thing. I, I on my first trip to Haiti, I was ever down there. Um, the very first time I went, um, I found it fascinating because there were there were in, in Port-au-Prince. There's lots of trucks and cars going around and people, but far more people on foot than there are in vehicles. And they'd have the tap taps or the the you know where you can get six or eight people or more. They pack a dozen on the back of a little Toyota. Um, truck and and haul people around like that's their taxis but the thing that I noticed more than anything is everybody's dressed to the nines most of them not all of them there's plenty that there's plenty of poverty there but the the gals have these great beautiful dresses on and the guys have good shirts and pants and all that and and their shoes are shined up and they're living in shacks most of them don't have cars and it's like they've got these these clothes and and it reminded me of that when I'm reading this because back in the day of Joel and even at the time of the Lord you know your clothes were valuable people didn't have cars and big fancy houses and all kinds of stuff maybe in the the the, the govern government or governors in the in the 
Pharisees and so forth, and the rich folks, I'm sure, had many pleasantries and all that. But the bottom line is, is you know, your cloak, your your clothes were valuable because that was pretty much what you had. Um, and so, if somebody was in in a this kind of a serious thing, it's like you just rent your clothes. Nothing is important. They'd put on sackcloth because that was what represented that that place that they had to be, where it was just this is too much for us to bear, and they would tear their clothes, and that was that was big. Now, around Jesus' time, things had already gotten to the point, and some of the rich and, the, and among the, the Sanhedrin and all, you know, they would tear their clothes, and it was more of a political statement, more of a big overreaction, you know, kind of like, you know, we see on TV these days when their people are outraged, you know, for whatever they think is going on, and they're trying to basically get everybody else to be outraged and work up and stir up people to to follow their their lead and try and do the things they're trying to manipulate people to do but and so there's that overreaction or that outrage that's really not um of the lord this what joel is talking about is serious we've got this is horrible this we cannot just go about our lives the way we've gone about our lives and so he says uh declare a fast um blow the trumpet in zion verse 15 consecrate a fast um Set, uh, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, everybody, bridegroom, you know, babies even. Um, so we're getting everybody together. The word sanctify has a few meanings. Um, it means to set apart as sacred. I mean, when we talk about something that is holy or that is, is sanctified, it really just the word simply means set apart, but it's more than that because we're talking about the holy things of God. We're talking about as unto the Lord. And uh, it's not just to be you know stuck over here for a little bit. No, it's as unto to the Lord and for the reason of a holy observance. To observe as holy, to devote, to concentrate a fast and also the congregation. Now, we talk about fasting. I, I'm sure some of you are familiar um, and may have... Uh, there's times, I suppose, there's people that are are um, diabetic or hypoglycemic or things. They can't fast. I mean, it may actually threaten their life to, to fast. There are people, though, that could probably just quit TV for a week and see what happens. I mean, there's, there's ways to fast and, and set yourself aside for the Lord. Bible talks, uh, Corinthians talks about, um, or not Corinthians, can't think of where it is, but where uh, Paul says, you know, it, the only time, and I think Dwight talked about this a few weeks ago, was uh, in marriage. You know, the, the the only time you'd separate yourselves would be for a fast. It's that thing where you go away from the usual day-to-day things of, of uh, you know, your life that um, that you do in the world. Not carnality necessarily in, in this particular sense. Yes, we're leaving the worldly. We're leaving the carnality. We're setting aside this um, sacred um, observance. And so... A fast, again, doesn't always have to be food. Uh, you can fast from television. You can fast from social media. I didn't hear a gasp. You know, you can fast from your gossip group. That's something that a lot of people tend to want to do, to get together just so they can see who what they can talk about. Um, and that one you can quit altogether, by the way. You don't need to return after you're done fasting with that one. Um, the trumpet is that you separate from something as much as to the Lord, uh, from something as much as you do as unto the Lord. 
And as Christians, we're called to live a holy life, you know, in the world, but not of it, right? It goes back to Peter asking what manner of people are we to be in the light of the day. The day of the Lord is very near. And notice it's everybody, the elders, the children, the babies, the brides, the grooms, the priests. Right in the middle, the priests are, are sackcloth and wailing right in the middle between the porch and there in the middle of the temple where everybody's gathered around. Here they, here they are. And it's not some big show. It's serious. They're, the Lord is saying, we're blowing the, the shofar. The earth is, is trembling. And the priests are in sackcloth in the midst of all of you. This is serious. And so if for no other reason than for God's own namesake among the nations, you know, they're, they're asking God to spare them. And, and he says, for no other reason, um, in verse uh, 16 and 17, um, let them say in 17, spare your people, O Lord. Do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Reminds me of Moses. When uh, the Lord was done with Israel, wandering in the desert, they were complaining and ungrateful. And the Lord was going to say, you know what, Moses, I've had it. I'll, I'll raise up a whole other bunch of people for you. And he says, no, for your name's sake, that the, that the Gentiles would know that there is a God in Israel and that you're a loving, gracious, and compassionate God. And so verses uh, 18 through 24 takes a little bit of a, a subject change, not just the people. And we talked about this last week as well, but then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. But the land is, is a, a big part of this. Um, you know, and how much, how much more will he be zealous for his own son? And for those who put their trust in him and those who have been reconciled to him through Jesus Christ, us, you know, the zeal of the Lord and how we would think of his uh, zeal is towards us. It's, it's not a, a casual thing whatsoever. And it's so good to know how much he loves us and how gracious and merciful he is to us, right? And uh, so verses 18 through 24, And the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'll send you grain and new wine and oil. You'll be satisfied by them. I'll no longer make you a reproach among the nations. I'll remove you. I'll remove far from you that northern army, and will drive him away into the barren and desolate land. And with his face toward the eastern sea, and his back toward the western sea, his stench will come up. In other words, they died right then and there, and they're laying there rotten. And because he has done monstrous things, in verse twenty-one, fear not, O land; be glad and rejoice. For the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field. He's providing for everything here. For the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit, and the fig tree its vine, and yields their strength. And be glad, then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain faithfully, and caused the rain to come down for you, and the former rain, the latter rain, in the first month. And the threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the vat shall overflow with new wine and oil. It brings peace. We may not have circumstances that uh, are comfortable for us, and oftentimes we're continuing to bear, you know, everything from getting old and starting to fall apart to some uh, injury or some accident um, or some sickness. You know, we often suffer, but we have peace knowing that we now have. Um, 
salvation. And he is taking care of us. He's taking away the warfare uh, of that northern army from us. There is a new warfare, spiritual warfare. There is an a, uh, enemy to our souls. But we can have peace. There's nothing that should take away our peace. Um, and that's kind of the description here. You know, fear not. O land, and be glad and rejoice, and everything's being provided for. Threshing floors are full. In verse 25, So I will restore you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, consuming locust, then chewing locust, as just as thoroughly as the land was scraped off from the first batch that came through, just as completely he's restoring all that was um, destroyed. And you shall eat plenty and be satisfied. Um, it's, he restores us that which the years have taken. Um, and uh, it's something that uh, is a comfort for many people who come to the Lord late in life and think that they have got so many regrets what they might have done. It's a comfort, comfort for people who may have been backslidden or fallen in a sin, and they need that restoration. Uh, they need to know that he is going to restore that. Now, there will always be consequences. I mean, if you're in prison for murder, you know, you can get saved. You're still going to have to stay in prison, right? But if you're, or if you're uh, divorced and, and uh, kids are damaged, and you, then you get saved, well, that you may not be able to remarry. That the new marriages may have taken place. There's going to be consequences for sure. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that he cannot restore spiritually and also in this life. In fact, the Bible says if you if you forsake your family for His name's sake, He'll restore you a hundredfold. Um, and so I'm. Uh, looking at that right now because I don't know of anyone in my family that's really truly been born again um, and I can say that but I don't know that for sure I think there may be some that, that do love the Lord but uh, um, here I sit now for the past 30 plus some years with a new family you guys we're, we're your family and uh, you're our family and we have brothers and sisters this is a the true family. This is the ones that we can confide in. These are the ones that we can be close to. And um, so, whatever your sin or disobedience or backsliding or crime, God will always restore you when re- when you return to Him. When you set yourself apart to Him again, He'll deal wondrously in your life. It says, taking away your shame. There will always be consequences of your actions. Even maybe some who were stumbled what the, by the, what they saw you do as a Christian even. And you, you slipped and stumbled and there might be people. You know, he'll deal with that. You return. You call on him. And nevertheless, to those who return to him, they're washed. They're sanctified. They're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And it says his people will never be put to shame. And, uh, you know, restoration to that which was lost in the garden, if you will. We're, we're able to walk with God and come directly and immediately to him through Jesus Christ. You know, and it's funny, it, you can always pause at this in verse 27, 25 through 27. Uh, it says, then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And then, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. 
and there is no other God. My people shall never be put to shame. That shows up throughout the Old Testament and in the New. Um, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. He does what he does so that we turn to him and that we do know that he's the Lord. Anything that we're struggling with, uh, whatever it is that we uh, have been caught up in, we turn and we go through that repentance. And um, he'll always bring us to that place. And then they'll know that he is the Lord. And uh, there'll be no shame. Now chapter, um, or verse uh, 28, is actually a chapter in the Hebrew Bible. The book of Joel has four chapters in the Hebrew Bible. Verse 28 is the beginning of chapter 3, and then where chapter 3 begins in our Bible is their chapter 4, for your free information. Uh, it does have a significance because we'll, we'll go to Acts here in a minute, but let's just read verses 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I'm glad he threw old men in there. I'm only 60, but I'm feeling it. Um, let's go to Acts. Well, first of all, there's, you, while you're turning to Acts chapter 1, we'll do 6 through 8, and then we'll read Acts chapter 2, just for the testimony of what this is speaking of. But there's a few times in the scriptures where the Spirit of God came on anyone in the Old Testament. You know, if you remember Saul, could, the Spirit of the Lord came on him and he prophesied, um, of all people. And then Moses, uh, David, uh, Many had the Spirit come upon them that we read in the Scriptures, but overall, in in the the, the among the Israelites, it was very few and far between. And so, when God prophesied this at that time to the hearer back then, did anybody knew their Old Testament, anybody that knew the the Torah, all people, all flesh, actually, it says everybody, Gentiles, and and so it it must have been shocking, um, not to mention. They would never stand for it if a son or a daughter of theirs could prophesy, or especially even a servant. Here's your servant in the house, and he's a prophet of the Lord. That that would have been astonishing to them. But if you want to switch over to Acts chapter chapter one, just uh, maybe starting in six and just to eight, um, the, to set a little context for for chapter two. Uh, Therefore, when he had come together. I'm sorry, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, or to the end of the earth. And so skipping down to... uh, chapter 2 where this takes place I'm just going to read through it and all because it's a testimony it is an absolute fulfillment of what we're reading in Joel and so when the day of Pentecost had fully come they were all with one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat on one upon each of them, um, 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them in our own tongue? In, in our own language, in which we have were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, those that had converted to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocked, saying, they're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up in, uh, with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. And it's funny, it's, Joel is saying, guys, sober up because you are drunk. And here he's saying just the opposite. And it's, uh, but but uh, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, God, uh, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And then it goes on where I did not read in Joel, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what's their response? There's got to be some other explanation for all this. They must be drunk. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, they won't understand. And here we have another look at some mockers like we were talking about in Peter um, on Sunday. The difference between religion and true Christianity is right here. Um, You know, the difference between religion and true Christianity is the spirit of God. You can be a religious Cub fan or Brewer fan or Packer fan. That's religion. You can be just as religious and more so. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that in Wisconsin, people are a bit more religious about the Packers than they are about the Lord on, on Sunday morning. They'll show up for their 45 minutes. I mean, if, if religion has to do with how much time you spend on something, now granted, we all got to work. I'm not saying that uh, your work is a religion, although I imagine for some it could be. Um, but Paul warns Timothy uh, in 1 Timothy 3, 5, that there would be those that have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. You know, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to convict any of us of our sin and draw us to Jesus. None of us figured it out on our own and in of our own strength and research and decided, you know, I've studied the archaeology and I do believe that, you know, certainly there's a testimony there, but none of that takes place without the Spirit of God drawing us. It's it's the only thing. And You'll never be convicted of your sins just by figuring out because uh, you know the judge told you it was wrong. You'll only be convicted of your sins 
by the Holy Spirit working in your heart. You know, when Jesus said the Spirit came, he did, came to do what? Convict the world of its sins. And um, the uh, other uh, characteristic of the Holy Spirit is comfort. You know, to comfort those who need comforting and convict those that need convicting. Um, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit for that. And Romans 1, verse 16, the gospel of is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Because I'm basically elaborating a little bit on the power. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that fills us with joy and peace and hope in Romans 15, 13. Romans 16, 25, he is able to establish us in the gospel. The Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel, that establishes us so that we can have this foundation, that we can have this uh, stability in our walks with him. It's by the Holy Spirit. If you want, let's flip back to 1 Corinthians um, 1 and 18 through 24, or 17, maybe 17 through 24, talking about uh, the power and the Spirit. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Look around, you guys. (laughs) Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? It always reminds me of, of when Jesus you know, asked the Jews to come to the wedding feast, his parable. You know, Can you guys come to the wedding feast? And they all turned him down. So what did he do? He went out in the roadside and he started looking through the shrubs to find people who were maimed, poor, unable to you know, even go into town. They have to hide out and homeless in the, in the outskirts. And that's where he went to find us, isn't it? I mean, look around amongst yourselves. I don't know, there might be some, some wise guys here, but you know, where is the, the scholar? Where is the, the uh, politician necessarily? Not that a politician can't necessarily be saved, but talking about disputers or people who are into the debating, into sorting out every possible thing. And hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the wise? In verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, you didn't get there by your own wisdom and, and sorting it out. It didn't please God through foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we cr- preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And by my speech and my preaching were not the pers- and, um, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. And I imagine that's the only reason you're here tonight, because mine ain't either. Um, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so, you know, we don't want to put our confidence in the 
uh, the fancy speech or the entertaining sermon or, or the thing that makes you feel good about yourselves and sends you on your way and you can come back next week and do it again because you did church, you, you squared away your business, and now you can go about your life the rest of the week. You know, that's, that's not, he's talking about having a spirit-filled life, having the power that's changing your life and, and causing you to walk a godly life. And so, and also in Ephesians 1.17, if you want to turn there, we'll continue to kind of support this. One, uh, Ephesians 1.17 to 23, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, in uh, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. And then over to chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask and think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. It says in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, three we're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Um, we have that ability, not in and of ourselves, ever. It's not by our own strength, but just by the Spirit of God that dwells in us, that gives us that power. Um, skipping over to Second Peter, um, just uh, chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, um, goes on to say, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by, by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. At the day of the Lord, um, it's the Lord's army. You know, He brings to execute his word. It's his army. He's bringing all this. He calls us to return to him. He restores us, no matter where we are, where we've been, no matter how far gone you think you are. If you're hearing this, you're listening, you're awake, you're coming out of your stupor, and he calls us to return to him. He restores us. He takes away our shame. There's got to be consolation in that for us. I mean, you if you've known shame, if you've done something, even after you were saved, and you think about that, it, it just makes you cringe. makes you just walk in the other room because you're ashamed. We've known that shame. It takes away your shame. He did that. On, he took that away on the cross. You can walk in this. He's given us his Holy Spirit, and we're kept by his power. And it's for whosoever, right? Whosoever calls on his name. 
And uh, so, uh, even John 3.16, for God so loved the world, whosoever calls on his name might have eternal life. So anyways, if you feel like stretching your legs, why don't we pray and thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for uh, drawing us to yourself. Thank you for bringing us to repentance. Help us, Lord, to continue to walk in it. Help us, Lord, to, uh, you know, this is for us. This is for what you've given for us to see and to know about your nature and your character and your love for us, your faithfulness to us, your covenant, Lord, the new covenant through your Son that with us. And, Lord, we just thank you so much. We thank you for the bright future we have, that we're going to be with you. Pray, Lord, that you would just keep our hearts and minds on you. We would be distracted by the things around us. And pray you'd send us out in, in uh, the world, Lord, with this light and not to hide it under a bushel. And uh, we just lift all these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power in uh, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. And then over to chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask and think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. It says in 1 Peter 1, 3, and 3 through 5, we're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Um, we have that ability, not in and of ourselves, ever it's not by our own strength but just by the spirit of god that dwells in us that gives us that power um skipping over to second peter um just uh chapter one verse two through four um goes on to say grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of god and of jesus our lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by, by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. At the day of the Lord, um, it's the Lord's army. You know, he brings to execute his word. It's his army. He's bringing all this. He calls us to return to him. He restores us, no matter where we are, where we've been, no matter how far gone you think you are. If you're hearing this, you're listening, you're awake, you're coming out of your stupor, and he calls us to return to him. He restores us. He takes away our shame. There's got to be consolation in that for us. I mean, you, if you've known shame, 
If you've done something even after you were saved and you think about that, it, it just makes you cringe. makes you just walk in the other room because you're ashamed. We've known that shame. It takes away your shame. He did that. On, he took that away on the cross. You can walk in this. He's given us his Holy Spirit and we're kept by his power. And it's for whosoever, right? Whosoever calls on his name. And um, so... Um, even John 3.16, for God so loved the world, whosoever calls on his name might have eternal life. So anyways, if you feel like stretching your legs, why don't we pray? And Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for uh, drawing us to yourself. Thank you for bringing us to repentance. Help us, Lord, to continue to walk in it. Help us, Lord, to, uh, you know... This is for us. This is for what you've given for us to see and to know about your nature and your character and your love for us, your faithfulness to us, your covenant, Lord, the new covenant through your son that with us. And Lord, we just thank you so much. We thank you for the bright future we have, that we're going to be with you. Pray, Lord, that you just keep our hearts and minds on you. We wouldn't be distracted by the things around us. And pray you'd send us out in, in uh, the world, Lord, with this light and not to hide it under a bushel. And uh, we just lift all these things up. In Jesus' name, amen.